Red Rocks Church, how we doing, good? Hey, will all you guys help me do this? Will you help me welcome everyone at our Littleton, Lakewood, Arvada, Evergreen, and can we just seriously give the most beautiful round of applause to all the men and women at God Behind Bars? We love you guys so much. So honored that we get to worship with you. One more, you guys know we got a new member of the family and they live thousands of miles away. So can we also give such a gracious, at all of our campuses, such a gracious round of applause to all the men and women at our campus in Brussels, Belgium. We love you guys so much. It's a dream come true that we get to worship with you guys every week and just hope you have yet another incredible weekend of church. If you're visiting with us, hi, my name's Chad. I'm one of the guys on staff. And I just want to say this before we go any further. I hope I do this often because I am so privileged to do the job that I get to do. And I take it serious. I have a bunch of fun. And I just, I feel like a kid in a candy shop that God allows me to preach his good news and his gospel. And I get to crack open the Bible and offer some people the hope that Jesus offers through his word. And I don't take that lightly. And one of the favorite things about this job is what a gracious church that I work for. You guys are so kind and so gracious to us. And we're not a perfect church. We got a lot of flaws and issues like any church does. But man, the kindness of you guys, I would put up against any church in the nation. And I just, especially at Christmas time, want to make sure that my heart is grateful and that you guys know that. I love getting to do what I get to do. And so we are, if you're visiting, we're in week three of a series that we have titled Against Our Better Judgment, an elf-esque Christmas vacation, miraculous teaching series about a wonderful life, home alone, on 34th Street. I should have packed a lunch, right? And I know for, for two weeks now, now three, some of you are going, why in the world did they call it that? I will let you in on some of the secret genius behind the scenes of Red Rocks Church. We called it that because it's our 11th Christmas series and we're out of ideas. <laughs> There it is. There's the brilliance. Here, here's what we sat around and said. We want to talk about Christmas, and we want to lift up the name of Jesus. And we told the creative team, do with it what you will, and this is what we have. Couple, Yeah, right? Brilliant. A couple weeks ago, Sean kicked off the series, and he started by telling you his favorite Christmas movie, and he said it was a tie between Christmas Vacation and what, Elf, right? Those are classics, amazing. And then last week, my brother said the best, perhaps, Christmas movie was, uh, what, Die Hard? Yeah, exactly. And a bunch of you were like, oh, that's not a Christmas movie. Well, you're wrong. It is, okay? <laughs> I do believe I know what the single greatest Christmas movie of all time is, and there's not a lot of room for disagreement, but do what you got to do at all of our campuses. You guys ready to hear what I believe the greatest Christmas movie of all time is? Yes. Braveheart. Clearly. <laughs> Clearly Braveheart. And here's why. You got, I know, again, you're thinking, well, that's not a Christmas movie. Au contraire. It wins the best movie in every genre of cinematography that we have. Best chick flick of all time, Braveheart. Best romantic comedy of all time, Braveheart. Best indie movie, best psychological thriller. We could go down the list. It is Braveheart, right? You can run and you'll live. Or we can fight because, man, they can take our lives but they cannot take our freedom, right? I just got goosebumps doing that. <laughs> Best Christmas movie of all time, Braveheart. That being said, we probably need to pray for this message, don't you think? Yeah. Let's do that at all campuses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a beautiful weekend. 
God, I thank you for the snow. I thank you for what the snow does to our earth. And God, I just thank you that you are going to do something so beautiful at all of our campuses this weekend. God, I believe that by faith. God, that's the power of your holy word and what it can do to a soul and to a heart that listens with humility and that listens with expectancy. And so, God, I pray for all of us at Red Rocks, that would be the posture of our heart this weekend. As we listen to your word, there'd be a posture of humility and that there would be a posture of expectancy. And God, more than anything, I want every person in our church to walk out of the doors of their respected campus more whole and redeemed than they walked in. And God, I ask this and pray this in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week, I was made privy to something going on in the Brugman household that I hadn't known about, and it had been going on in the Brugman household for about the last two or three years. I kept coming home, and I kept seeing, and it happened every Christmas time, and don't tell my wife this, but she's a bit of an over-decorator, okay? And so I would see this particular ornament or whatever you would call it in the house, and I'd just be like, oh yeah, that's probably a Rachel thing. But then I started to realize for the first time this year, every time I come in the house, it's in a different place. And I started thinking, well, that's probably my kids, the young ones just being young ones and messing with whatever it was. And, and then I realized most of the time it's in a place my kids couldn't even put it on. And I was like, why does Rachel keep moving this? It's not even a, a big deal. She needs to like rethink this or whatever. And, and, and so I finally, I said, I just said, honey, what is this? Right? Like what? The, yeah, Elf on the Shelf. And I should have known that because apparently it's an American Christmas phenomenon. But literally this last week, I actually learned about the Elf on the Shelf. How many of you guys, and don't lie because God's here in this house, okay? How many of you guys at all of our campus, by a show of hands, would say, we as a family like the Brugmans, we participate in the Elf on the Shelf phenomenon? Keep them up. Be proud. Just own it. I'm going to rip on Elf on the Shelf this whole message this weekend. Just be proud. So I start talking to my wife, and I go, what's this? What is this? And she said, well, this is Ellie. She's a girl elf, and our kids named her, and we adopted her. And basically, she sits in all different places all throughout the house from the day after Thanksgiving until the day before Christmas. And Ellie, our kids believe, just watches their behavior. And she charts when they're doing something naughty, and she charts when they're doing something nice. And after the month between um, Thanksgiving and Christmas Eve, Allie's going to go back to Santa and report to him how naughty they've been and how nice they've been. And then he's going to quantify the results, and he's going to decide what type of Christmas blessing or lack thereof that my children are going to get, right? And I kind of looked at Rachel, and I said, seriously, that's how it works? And she's like, that's how it works, and the kids love it. And I said, you know what, Rachel? that's really cool. And I'm glad our kids love it. And, and, you know, we're going to leverage this elf on the shelf thing as long as it lasts for the joy and the traditions of our family. But it's kind of bad theology. He's like, oh, I married a pastor. Here we go, right? We're just trying to have some, we bake cookies, we read the story. It's a lot of fun. And I said, I understand that. But think if, think if we elf on the shelf, you as an adult, like, then it's not that fun. Think if we elf on the shelf, you during this, this service, that would just be distracting and weird, right? And then I started thinking to myself, I'm actually going to do that for a service. Why not? But this elf isn't, isn't intimidating enough to really let you sit under the weight that you put your children in when you elf on the shelf. And so I said, you know what? We're going to get a couple of real Santa elves out here. So if, if Santa's workers, uh, Bridget and Orrin, if you would come out here, I just want you to do the job that you have been hired and paid by Santa to do. Yeah, give it up for them. I simply told them that I would appreciate it if that they would stare at you during the whole message. 
so that when you're on your phone and you're reading the YouVersion Bible app to follow along, you're actually looking at your fantasy football? Now they know, okay? When we worship, if, if you're like here, like, you know, in worship and you're supposed to be one of these, they know, right? Right? If you, it, when we pass the bucket, right? Elf on the shelf's not so fun now, right? Now it's a little bit intimidating, right? And, and, and I, listen, parents, I'm going I'm I'm to pick on Elf on the Shelf this whole weekend, but, but listen, have fun with your family. We're going to continue to do it. I'm not really being that serious about it. You can have a lot of fun, but, but here's, here's what I hate is a lot of times we don't consciously say this or think this, but do you know how many of us, if we really get honest about the way we think about God and how God deals with situations, we literally sometimes think he's an Elf on the Shelf God? We really do. We think God is somehow up there cosmically just constantly refereeing between our naughty moments and our nice moments, and then he's deciding with some divine formula that he has up there in the celestial realms how he's going to bless us or withhold from us, right? Again, we've been in church long enough, and we've heard the gospel enough to not actually think we believe that, but when you look at your life and your thought life and how you talk about God sometimes functionally, oftentimes God looks more to the world like we think he's an alpha on the shelf, God, than what he really is. And so as fun as it is for kids and as tradition and as much tradition is wrapped up in it, man, it's destructive theology when we carry that type of mindset into our adulthood and into our relationship with God. And it's amazing how many people do. And here's, here's what I want to talk about this Christmas season this week, because for all the amazing things that this Christmas season teaches us, and the Christmas narrative and the Christmas story teaches us, one of the most important things that we're going to look at this weekend that the Christmas story teaches us is simply this. You cannot formulate out God. And the problem with that is we live in a nation that is most known for being pragmatic. When, when, when the American dream is long gone and this empire is dead and done like Rome, whenever that may be, and I hope it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years from now, they will look back in the history books and one of the things we will most be known for as a country is we were the single most pragmatic and methodical country to ever walk the face of the earth. And so many incredible things in our capitalistic society and government has come because of how pragmatic and practical and methodical we've been in our approach to business business, and all kinds of other things. And just like the elf on the shelf, you can leverage this for a lot of fun and a lot of good things in your family. And just like we as a country are the single most pragmatic and methodical country in the history of the world, and we've leveraged that for a lot of good things, here's one of the downsides that we have to be so careful about in our Western cultural mentality is this. We don't sit well in mystery. And the problem with that is the Apostle Paul says it best when he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 16. He says this, the mystery of godliness, Red Rocks Church, is great. King Solomon, and it won't come up on the screens, but King Solomon puts it this way in the book of Proverbs. He says, to man belongs the plans of the heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails, right? 
We make plans. It's okay to be practical. It's okay to be pragmatic. It's okay to kind of have some formulas in life that help keep boundaries around what you do. But here's the deal. Make all the plans in the world you want, but there's going to be so many times in life when our sovereign God and King does something with the outcome, even though you planned, that looks completely different than you would have ever drawn it up on paper. In fact, this is the reason so many people, when Jesus was here on earth, missed Christmas and they missed Jesus was because he did come in the form in the fashion that they were expecting because we like formulas if we want a God that it's if I do a and I do B then I should get C right and we spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out how does God work within that concept the problem though is this we find God in faith not in formulas I think Jesus wish he could have had a megaphone and just screamed that to everyone in first century Judea when he was actually on planet earth. I think he would have looked to, loved to have looked at all of them and said, listen, you're never going to find me by trying to formulate me out because the mystery of godliness is great. To man, the Bible says, belongs the plans of the heart, but what? The Lord determines the steps. It's great that you plan. But God determines the steps, and because the Bible says in Isaiah that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways, that guarantees you that no matter how much you plan, some of the outcomes aren't going to look like you would expect them to, and too often when that happens, we miss Jesus, because here's what happens if you're a, if I do A, and if I do B, then I think God should give me C. Well, what happens when he doesn't give you C, you start to have these kind of thoughts, well, maybe God doesn't care, and that's just not true. We don't serve a God that stops caring. Or, or maybe, let's take it a step further, maybe God's not real. And I'm here to boldly tell you that's not true either. But if you don't go down that path, maybe God doesn't care, maybe God's not real. Here's the third one, and this is equally destructive. I think God's mad at me because I did A and I did B, but I didn't get C. And the message of Christmas is like, listen, believe in a Messiah but, but, but don't put boundaries on how you expect him to come into your life because it's not going to look the way you expect. And so many people, again, in first century missed Jesus because he didn't come in the form and the fashion that they expected him to. Let's do this before this gets real creepy. Will you guys give it up for Bridget and Oren? I'm going to give them a break. This was also a plug for our internship. Why wouldn't you want to come and learn ministry? <laughs> They're like, we really signed up for this? Awesome. Give away nine months of my life. Seriously, though, go online, apply for our internship. You won't regret it. I promise you. We're about to read a passage of scripture. It's the first chapter of Luke. And immediately in this narrative that we're about to read, within three verses of what Luke starts writing about the Christmas story in chapter one, you're going to see that he destroys this elf-on-the-shelf theology about God, this idea that God's simply working off of our naughty and our nice. Let, let, let's go ahead and read. This is Luke chapter one, starting in verse five. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He and his wife from the... He had a wife, excuse me, from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So we're going to call them Zach and Liz for the message. And then I want you to hear this, okay? They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. I'm going to read that one more time because I want you to understand that if we serve a God who simply works on the elf on the shelf, naughty and nice principles then these should be the most charmed and blessed people on planet earth, right? Think about this with me for a minute. 
He's been a priest now. They're in old age. The, the, the story will go on to tell us that. They're both at old age. And for decades now, he's been a faithful servant of God as one of the priests in God's temple, doing God's bidding on behalf of the people. That should qualify you for some blessings from God, right? And it says she's got this incredible lineage, this incredible genealogy. It says she's one of the daughters of Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest. Aaron was Moses' brother, right? She comes from great lineage, so you think maybe that would get her some points to live a really charmed and blessed life, right? And then to top both of those things, it says they were both righteous before God, walking, and then here's the word, blamelessly, in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord, right? So they're prototypes for God's blessing. If God's going to bless us for whether we're naughty or nice, and that's how he formulates it out, they deserve to be blessed more than all of us. Can't we agree on that? But then all of a sudden, verse 7 screws all that up. Listen to what it says next. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So in one statement Luke makes about this couple, Zach and Liz, he says this in one sentence. They were blameless and barren. You can't resolve those two things with an elf on the shelf mentality about how God treats us in this lifetime. It just doesn't work, right? They can't be blameless and barren. They should have had the most blessed womb in all of Judea. They should have had six kids, not none. They should have had 12 kids. They should have duggered it. They should have had like 19 or 20 kids according to their righteousness because, ladies, you got to understand this. In first century Judea, your whole female identity was wrapped up in your ability to have kids or not. And, and as crazy as this sounds to us now in our evolved culture, they literally believed this as Jews in first century. They believed if you were a lady and you could not have a child, if your womb was barren, they literally believed you were cursed. Our modern lingo is somehow as godly as this woman seems and as noble as her husband the priest is, something must be going on behind closed doors at home because apparently God's put her on the naughty list because she can't do the single most sacred thing God called her to do, which is have a kid. So they, they literally thought this. This was first century theology about everything difficult that happened to Jewish people. In fact, just to show you, just, to, just so you don't take my word for it, let's step outside of the Christmas narrative for a minute and let's go to John 9. Read this. Listen. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked Jesus, listen to this question, Rabbi, who sinned? Not did someone sin, like that could be the reason, because sometimes our sins is what gets us in some trouble, right? But they're not going who sinned, or not, they're not saying did someone sin. They're saying, no, who sinned, as if we obviously know this blindness came because of sin. Obviously, this kid's on the naughty list or his parents are, right? And that's what they say. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Which one of them's on the naughty list? And Jesus answered him. It was not this man. It was not that this man sinned, sorry reading, top to bottom, right to left, Chad, <laughs> or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Did you hear that? There's a way bigger story going on with this man's suffering of blindness. Jesus goes, oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm here to completely reframe your formulaic thinking about the God that you serve. He's better than that. He didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. I had him blind so that we could have this healing moment so that I could yet again use him to testify to the world that I'm the healer of disease and sickness and deafness and blindness and I raised the dead. I'm going to use him to get a whole bunch of people to be drawn to me. 
He didn't sin. I'm using some of his human suffering to bring glory to God, right? And yet again, we read he's just destroying this naughty or nice theology that too often we fall into the trap of. So the Cliff Notes version, and I just want to go back real fast and review, and then we'll continue reading in Luke, but I'm just going to Cliff Notes the rest of, of, of Zachariah and Elizabeth's story for you. So what happened was they were blameless and they were barren, right? Now they're in old age. They were advanced in years, and all of a sudden, Zachariah is going to the temple, and he's one of 24 divisions of priests with hundreds of priests in each division, so he only went to the big temple twice a year to do God's work. And there were hundreds of priests, and they would cast a lot to see which of the hundreds of priests in that division was going to get to go into the Holy of Holies, into the temple, and light incense on the altar to God. This was like the highest privilege as one of the priests, and his time came up. This was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. So he goes into the temple, and he gets picked to go in and light the incense. And while he's in there, in this most sacred place, he gets an angelic visit from one of God's chief ministering spirits called Gabriel. And this angel comes to him, and he says this, and I'm going to paraphrase the rest of this so you theologians out there don't email me. I'm just putting it in Chad speak. He basically says, hey, what's up? And he goes, oh, my word, right, as we all would when there's an angel talking to you. And he says, hey, the prayers that you have had are being answered, and your wife, Elizabeth, who was barren, is now going to have a baby. To which, if I'm Zachariah, here's what I say, awesome. Can't wait to go play football with my kid finally now that I'm 80. Thank you for answering that after four decades of faithful service to you in your holy temple, God. Thank you. Now we get to both wear diapers together. What a fun deal. Awesome. <laughs> that, now, that's why I'm not Zachariah and God hasn't chosen me to do something that awesome, right? But that would literally be my thinking. It was like, man, we've prayed forever. We've lived holy. We've lived blameless. We've lived righteous. And we're going to hardly have any time to enjoy this child that you finally give us. But he doesn't say any of that. He does say this, though. He goes, and I think this is a fair question. Tell me if you disagree, but I think this is a fair question. He goes, well, how will this be? And then he says, someone who's only been married for four decades would think to say, he goes, because I'm very old. And then he goes, and my wife is advanced in years. <laughs> All right? Come on, married people, you know that. He was getting ready to go, I'm so old, she's so old, we're both has-beens. And he goes, no, she's, she's, she's wise, I'm old, right? That's, take notes, gentlemen. He says that, and here's what happens. Gabriel, I guess, gets a little offended. And he goes, well, how would this be? And Gabriel's answer, and again, I'm paraphrasing, is because you're talking to an angel sent from the Lord. Like, if, if you can't trust God's plan, even though it's miraculous, with this happening, who's going to trust anything about God, right? And so he says this. It almost sounds like a punishment or something. He says, you're going to be mute until this baby, John the Baptist, is born. You're not going to be able to speak for the whole rest of this birthing process. Now, here's what's crazy about that. The very next thing we read is the narrative where Gabriel's on the scene again, except now he's announcing to a 15-year-old girl she's about to have the Savior of the world. Now, let's sit in some mystery for a minute. I don't understand why a guy could be faithful for that many decades until he finally gets given an answer to his prayers that is so beautiful. And then right around in the very next thing we read, a 15-year-old girl who has next to no time in her life to have anything good or bad on her resume of naughty or nice, not only gets chosen 
to have what Elizabeth and Zachariah got, but she gets to one-up them with the Savior of the world. And here's what else is crazy about what we read next is Mary asks the same question Zachariah does. Well, how will this be? And you think Gabriel in his justice would say, now you're mute too. You're mute, you're mute. You know, he's just muting everyone. But you know what he does with, with young Mary? He just answers her question. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you and come upon you and you shall be with child and he will be Jesus, right? That's again paraphrasing. But all he does is, same question as Zachariah, completely different response. And you go, why is that? Why does the 15-year-old girl get the savior of the world and he just gets John the Baptist? Which, like, oh, what a horrible thing, right? But the, here, here's my answer to that. Mystery. That's what Christmas, one of the things it teaches us is, is, listen, you don't get to formulate God. You will never find God in formulas. You will only find Jesus in faith. And when we start trying to look left to right and we start trying to compare our stories one to the other like Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary could have done to each other, that listen, that is a fool's errand. That will get you nowhere. And if there's ever a time where the comparison game, you might be more and more tempted to play, isn't it at Christmas when there's such this unspoken yet very real subconscious and conscious pressure to keep up with the Joneses next to you? Come on, moms and dads, you're feeling that pressure. Bunch of you know what some of your kids' friends are getting for Christmas that you might not ever buy them for Christmas or you might not even be able to buy them for Christmas. And you might be saying, but, but his parents are atheists and we've been godly and we give to our church and we can't give our kids what they're gonna give their kids and our kids realize they're not gonna get what they get and it's just this, it's like, no, no, there's some mystery in God's sovereignty that he asks us as his children and as his disciples to sit in. And so I just want to do this. I want to just keep building off this idea, and then I'm going to bring it home at the end. But I want to read the narrative, just a few verses of Mary's story. This is what Luke records next. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. What an awesome statement. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her again, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, now this just gets better. So like who wouldn't want an angel to come down tonight and just say, hey, by the way, God favors you, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that cure so many of your worries or so you think? Wouldn't that cure so many of your anxieties this Christmas? Wouldn't that cure so many of the fears that you walk in? So many of the things that feel so big to you, you would all of a sudden see as so small and petty if an angel of God could just come down and say, hey, God's for you. God favors you, right? And it just gets better. He says, hey, not only are you gonna have a kid, but let me tell you who this kid is. Let's read. It says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. Who doesn't want that said about their kid, right? He will be great and will be called the Son, capital S, of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him to him the throne of his father, David. Now it's getting sacredly awesome. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, not for a term, but what? Forever. And then it finishes with this statement. And of his kingdom, Jesus's, in other words, there will be no end. Hey, Mary, that's your kid God's going to give you. And you sit there and go, that's what God's favor looks like? Yeah. You get Jesus. 
But, but can I tell you what Luke doesn't record that could have possibly happened in a conversation between Gabriel and Mary? It probably didn't, but it, it could have, and it would have been an appropriate conversation. Let's just pretend like they continue to talk, and we know what they said. I think it might go something like this. Hey, Mary, I know. Isn't this awesome that you get to have Jesus? Like, this is the essence of Christmas. You get to be the mother of Jesus. You literally get to take care of him and watch him grow up and do what only Jesus can do. What a high honor and privilege. But here's what comes with favor, Mary. The very first thing long before Jesus is even born after we have this talk that's going to happen is it's almost going to cost you a divorce. You're almost going to get divorced because, of course, you're going to go and tell Joseph the whole, the Holy Spirit got me pregnant. Stay with me. He's going to be like, okay, yeah. And the Bible even says he, he's a nice guy, so he was going to quietly divorce her. What if Gabriel says, hey, hey Mary, I know you're, you, listen, you're so favored by God that he trusts you with this. Uh, for your whole pregnancy, you're going to walk around Galilee with the scarlet letter A for adultery. Because, of course, no one's going to believe your story, that it's a virgin birth. Are you okay with that kind of scrutiny and judgment and persecution? And treatment because it's going to happen. That's, that's what's going to come with God's favor here at Christmas. Oh, and, and hey, Mary, you who are highly favored, chosen by God to be the mother of the Savior of the universe, as soon as you have that child, the first thing you're going to have to do is go into exile as a refugee. And guess where we're going to send you? To your enemy nation, Egypt, for two years. You who are highly favored. Oh, and you who are highly favored, as soon as after two years it's safe for you to come back home, it's actually not going to be safe in your hometown, and so you're going to have to start over in a different city, different place. You who are highly favored, chosen of God. Oh, and here's, here's, here's the big one, Mary. You who are highly favored. Here's what's going to happen in about 30 years after you come back from Egypt. You're going to have to do what no parent should ever have to do. You're going to have to bury your son instead of him burying you. And before you bury him, you're going to watch with your very eyes him experience Roman crucifixion for something he's completely innocent of. You're going to have to watch that and then help put on the burial clothes for Jesus. You who are highly favored. Do you know what Christmas meant for Mary? Christmas meant for Mary that life was about to get hard. And you don't hear a lot about that during Christmas series, do you, at church? But it's a reality of the Christmas story we cannot avoid and ignore. Do you understand that? Because here's the deal with God's favor on your life. It's not about you getting stuff. It's about you getting used. The pinnacle of God's favor is not about giving you stuff. And if we ever needed to hear that, it's in the season of getting stuff, right? The pinnacle of God's favor is about giving you purpose. Sometimes stuff comes because people have been faithful in their purpose, and that's great and wonderful, but stuff, material things, is nothing compared to the joy of being used by God. But make no mistake about it, Red Rocks Church, if you really want to walk in the fullness of God's purpose for you in this lifetime, just like Mary, when he favors you and gives you a task, it is going to come with persecution, it is going to come with trials, it is going to come with tribulations, and it is going to come with suffering. That's what happened with Mary at Christmas. Christmas. Life got way harder than if Jesus wouldn't have came onto the scene. You understand that? 
And the reason I don't want to run away from that truth, I'm not trying to create a difficult, like, like dark weekend at church. I'm just simply saying there are so many of you that walk through the doors of Red Rocks Church and life is handing it to you right now. And what I know about Christmas is this. It, yes, has the power to accentuate really good seasons if you're in one at Christmas, but you know what it equally has the power to do? It accentuates difficult seasons for people at Christmas. And it's easy to lose hope And it's easy to start thinking that if things are going bad, especially at Christmas season, maybe God doesn't care about you, or maybe he's forgot about you, or maybe he's not real, or maybe he's punishing you or mad at you. None of which is true. None of which is true. But that's just what happens. That's the life on this side of eternity until second Christmas happens. When Jesus comes back the second time, there's going to be death. There's going to be mourning. There's going to be crying. There's going to be pain, the Bible tells us. When he comes back for second Christmas the next time, guess what? All that is going to be gone. Until then, the highest form of favor isn't to get stuff. It's to be used, right? And some of you got brought here this weekend because you needed to hear that. Romans 5 tells us this in not so many words. I don't want you to think this is my opinion. Who cares about my opinion? Listen to the word of God. This is Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by what? Faith, not formulas. No one in here is justified right now before God because of some formula, because you did A and B and now it equals C. We are justified simply by faith. Paul writes, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access. Again, one thing, faith. You only find faith in God, not formulas. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And then here it is. You guys ready for this? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Of course we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Who doesn't? But then listen to this. We also, we're responsible for this. We also rejoice in our sufferings. Not because there's something inherently noble about suffering. Listen to me. God is not the author of suffering. Some of you need to hear right, that right now because that's the theme of your Christmas. You're suffering in some form or fashion. God is not the author of suffering, but he is the divine user of suffering for his glory. You understand that? And so Paul tells us this, he goes, listen, there's not something inherently noble about suffering, but listen to what suffering in this lifetime does. It produces endurance, and that's necessary to to fulfill God's plan over your life. You have to be a person of endurance. And endurance gives you what? Character. You can't fulfill God's plan without character. Mary could have never been the mother of Jesus unless she walked in a profound amount of character. And do you know where that got developed? It got developed in the difficult times that Jesus and Christmas brought her. That's why James says, consider it pure joy, Red Rocks Church, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work. Why? So that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It says, character produces hope. That's the ultimate goal of Christmas, is to get you to a place of hope. Where did it start? Suffering. Hope does not put us to shame. Your Bibles mostly will say hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. So there's this spectrum in life. Until Jesus comes back or you breathe your last, listen to me, there's this spectrum in life that we all live in. And on one end of the spectrum, we'll call it what Romans calls it, God's glory. Who doesn't want to feel God's glory? Who doesn't want to sense God's presence? I do all the time. I just want to live in an ever-increasing degree of God's glory and presence in my life, right? We all want that. 
So on one end of the spectrum, you've got God's glory that we live in right now, but then on the other end of the spectrum, you have what I'll call just human suffering. Both of those are equal realities right now that we cannot avoid or not talk about. And so our lives are this endless day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, et cetera, is this endless experience between God's glory and between human suffering. And all of our lives to different and varying degrees at different times and in different ways are this big mashup of the two. And what's so powerful about Christmas is Christmas accentuates both of these experiences in life, God's glory, but also human suffering. That's what it does. And what I want us to know this Christmas season, this isn't the only part of the Christmas story, but what God put on my heart this weekend for this part of the Christmas series was to remind you that, listen, whether you're experiencing this Christmas an abundance of God's glory and his presence is just tangible and felt and you're living in just what feels like a charmed, blessed life right now, can I just say this? We celebrate that with you. The Bible says we're supposed to praise when when things are going good with people, right? But you know what it says in the same verse in the book of James? We're also supposed to mourn with people and suffer with people when they suffer. And for some of you right now, you're, you're on the closer end of human suffering during this Christmas than you are God's glory right now. You're feeling that more than anything. And so you start, if you're not careful, to get these mind games that Christmas just helps accentuate, which is, man, God, maybe God doesn't care for me. Maybe he's mad at me. Maybe he's not real, right? And, and I just came to tell you that, listen, a big part of Christmas is God saying, I favor you enough to trust you with trials. I favored you enough to allow some suffering that I never authored or intended, but it's a result of this sinful world we live in. And I'm in the business right now of taking what the enemy meant for bad and turning it around and using it for good. And so I'm asking you, Mary, to sit in some suffering as you're exiled to Egypt. Or I'm asking you, and then you fill in the blank with your story, to maybe sit in some suffering or trials or tribulations and not think it's an indictment on you and your relationship with God. But what if it's divine trust between you and God? What if he's favoring you enough to use you? But because we make this great American capitalistic mistake of thinking that Christmas rises and falls on stuff, We make this mistake in our American theology of thinking that God's favor gives us all the things we want and keeps us safe from all the things that are bad. Do you know what that is? That's favor from Santa. Let's call it what, that's favor from Santa and, and, and earmuffs kids. Santa's not real. (gasps) Those were adults. They're like, what? Sorry. That's why we have kids rock. God is. And Jesus came into the world through Mary and Christmas started and guess what? That made Christmas hard for Mary, not easier. And guess what? She would look down from heaven right now to all of us and say, I don't regret it one bit and I would do it my life again in the way it happened every time. Do you know what Zachariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist are sitting up in heaven saying right now? We don't regret any of it. We had to wait four decades for our prayer to be answered. And even if it wouldn't have been answered, guess what? God was enough. They proved 
that that late in life, they were still going to the temple to be God's faithful servants. They proved that Jesus is enough, that God is enough, Elizabeth and Zachariah, because even in their old age, when they didn't get the prayer answered in the way or in the time frame that they wanted, they were serving God passionately long after they thought that prayer wasn't going to be answered. Yet they're saying Jesus is enough. Call me naive, call me a simpleton, but I believe with all my heart that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough this season. And some of you, can I just tell you the truth? Your, your problem's not gonna be fixed before Christmas. That test result might not come back and say what you've been praying and wanted to say. It might, it might not, I don't know. That relationship might not get mended. It might, it might not. Because there's mystery, the mystery of godliness is great. Here's all I can tell you and I stand by it. Jesus is enough. When his glory is the theme, he's enough. And when human suffering is a part of your story and your theme, he's enough. That's what Christmas is about. We get Jesus, not stuff. And Jesus is enough. Would you guys at every campus stand? I'm gonna pray for us. And we get the privilege of worshiping God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus. God, one of my favorite things about the Bible is it doesn't hide the sometimes difficult truths from us. Because all truth, even when it's difficult, is good. All truth is bringing freedom. Jesus, you said you shall know the truth and the truth will actually set you free. And right now there's people at all of our campuses that came in and had, had, had wrong understanding about this Christmas season and came into our campuses thinking that all of the bad going on during what's supposed to be such an incredible time of year is nothing more than an indictment on their relationship between you and them. And, and, and you sent them here to tell them that no matter what's going on in their life, that you're for them and that you're with them, that you have a plan for them and that you're using all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. God, I pray that people that are feeling depressed or suicidal, people in our church that are feeling despondent and sad, people in our church that are feeling nervous and worried and anxious, Father God, I ask in these next few minutes as we begin to sing to you our hearts that you would begin to show them that you are enough. You would begin to fill them yet again with the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit that they would sense your glory more than they sense human suffering right now, God. God, may we this weekend, may we sense and feel yet again and be reminded of your presence and your glory. God, I ask this as one of your children and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. At all of our campuses, let's worship.